we all have to make decisions in life, right? Every single one of us have to make decisions every single day. And if you're like me, and like this young man that I was kind of coaching this week, the question is always, what's the will of God in this decision that I have to make? And we're like willing to do whatever it takes to find out what the will of God is in whatever decision we've got to make, as long as it lines up with what we want to do, right? Isn't that right? There are turning points in all of our stories, moments that we look back on and we say, something changed there. God, God had a different thing in mind right there. And because of that different thing he had in mind, my story is not the same. Throwing football is a way that I enjoy God's gift of me being a man. It's good. It's, I love to throw football. There's just something about it. So Clay and I are sitting out throwing football setting the sun that evening. I mean, we're, we're throwing football until we cannot see the ball anymore. And it's getting dangerous that it's so dark outside. And then Clay drops on me one of these questions that's like, hey man, can you think of a better time to ask me that question? He says, so, hey, Ryan, Clay is older than me. He says, hey, Ryan, what are you going to do with your life? I'm 17. I'm like, what, what do you mean? I'm going to throw football, man. What do you mean? It was the first time I had ever been, had the proposition of, thinking about the future further than I could see into high school. He asked me what I was going to do with my life, and I began to tell him turn by turn all of the plans that I had for my life. As far as I thought, you know, I'm going to get into college, and then college will handle itself from there. So I told him turn by turn, I'm going to the University of Kentucky. I'm going to study civil engineering. It's going to be a great, it's going to be a great time. And then he stops me in my tracks, and he says, he says this, why do you want to do that? And I thought, I, I don't, it sounds like a good idea. People think, I tell people this and they think, hey, it's a good idea. He said, well, have you asked the Lord about that? And I'm like, you know. <laughs> it's like one of those moments where you're like, ah, and I'm reeling. And I begin to realize as I unpack this with the, the sun going down, throwing the football back and forth, the pigskin in our hands, I begin to realize that I hadn't sought the Lord. And, and in fact, that I hadn't sought the Lord, I had assumed that I knew what was best for my life. That night, I realized that there's often a conflict in my will and God's will, and that God's will is always best for my life. Because it was that question that Clay asked me as we were throwing football, as I began to ask the, the, the bigger picture questions of life, and I began to ask God really what He wanted to do with my life. And that's what led me to say no to the scholarship that I had at the University of Kentucky and say yes to going to the small Bible college. And no, Bible college wasn't the answer, but it led me a step closer to what was the answer, which was listening to the Lord leading me. And on and on and on. God is so jealous to show us how much He cares for us, and He'll stop at no end in saving us from ourselves. That's what God does. The big idea of where we're going today. In John 16 is this, guys. Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. So let's read God's Word from John 16, verses 1 through 16. Jesus is in the upper room with His disciples. He said some very troubling things to them. He's told them He's going to leave them. There's been all kinds of conflict that have happened in this upper room. And then here's what He says to His disciples in John 16. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. 
they, talking about the world, will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, here's what he'll do. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that He will take what is mine and declare it to you. Let's pray. Father, this morning we pray that You take what is yours, and you declare it to us through the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that you would show us the sensitivity of Jesus to emotion, the care that he has for his disciples. And Father, I pray that you would show us what the role of the Holy Spirit is in us and in the world. And I pray that you would cause us, cause our affections to grow for you, and that you would do a great Great work in us this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So last week we talked about this idea that the world, the cosmos, is going to hate disciples. And the reason that they hate disciples is because what happens in conversion, what happens when someone becomes a believer of Jesus, is so radical. It's, it's so radical because God brings life from death. That's what He does. And He says it's so radical that your lives are going to be taken. We talked about last week how from historical accounts we have record that every single apostle that was in this room was martyred for their faith with the exception of the Apostle John. So some serious heavy things that Jesus is sharing to His disciples, sharing with His disciples and it's, in it, it's if Jesus answers a question that the disciples are asking that we don't even have any record that they've asked. It's almost like he's reading their minds. It's almost like they're asking this question to themselves. Jesus, why didn't you tell us this sooner? I mean, if you would have told us sooner, Jesus, we could have made our lives, we could have planned, we could have prepared for this. And Jesus says, I didn't tell you these things sooner because I was with you. All of the comfort that you needed, all of the assurance that you needed was right before your face. I'm telling you these things so that when they happen, that you'll be prepared and you won't fall away. That's why he tells his disciples these things. And it's interesting, just as a quick point of clarity, in verse 5, chapter 16, Jesus says, But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? 
Well, as I was reading that, I'm like, Jesus, what are you talking about? Because in John 13, 36, Peter clearly asked the question, Lord, where are you going? I'm thinking, what is he asking here? And then, then it began to click. What Jesus is saying is that you're no longer concerned about my destination. You're no longer concerned about that. But what you're concerned about is the fact that I'm leaving you. And you want some assurance that even though I'm physically leaving you, that I'm not really leaving you. And this is what Jesus is saying, that this is what the Holy Spirit is going to come and declare to you. That I'm not leaving you. That in fact, it's, it is better that I go away. That I'm going away for such a purpose that your life in Christ, post-Jesus being walking on the earth, is going to be better than it was when I was with you. Because I've got a work to do. So their thoughts shifted away from this destination and this destination type thinking. And, and Jesus says this in John 16, 6. I want you to pay attention to the, to the very considerate and caring part of Jesus' tone toward His disciples. These men that He loved, that He's given His life for. Listen to how He, how he, how he talks to them. He says, because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Jesus isn't just interested in dropping a ton of information on them and saying, hey, go get to work, boys. Jesus is interested in their hearts. He's in tune with their emotions. He's not saying you need to bypass these emotions. He goes on to say in 1612, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. You can't handle what I have to tell you right now. The disciples' emotions play a huge part in who they are. And what we feel and what we believe are far more connected to our life in Christ than we could ever imagine. Why is it, as Western Christians, that we are so afraid of our emotions? Why is it that sadness and pain play no beneficial role in the American Christian's life? Why is it? Because it doesn't seem to be the case right here with Jesus. Could it be, church, and this is just a proposition, just a question that we ask ourselves, could it be that we are trying to protect ourselves from the thing that will save us? Jesus bringing us to a point of utter dependence upon Him. And us not trying to bust through things when they don't go as planned. When loss occurs in our life, actually grieving the loss. When pain occurs in our life, actually acknowledging the pain, could it be that that's the whole reason that God has allowed this to happen, orchestrated this to happen in our life, is that he wants to do something at a deeper level? Bob Burns in his book, Resilient Ministries, this, this book I've been reading, because I'm interested, as your pastor, in the long haul of ministry. I'm interested in being a pastor for the rest of my life. I'm not interested in starting a church, burning myself out, and then never being in ministry again. So I'm reading this book called Resilient Ministry, and one of the things that he, that he says in this book is this. As young Christians, we were told to put the facts of Christianity first. So let's put the facts first, exercise faith in those facts, and then force our feelings to follow in submission. That's what we were taught to do. This is what you and I spend most of our lives doing, is we ignore the emotion, the pain, the things in our life that we cannot explain. And we, we try to force them, we, we suppress them to follow in submission to the facts. All the while, the Lord has desired for our emotions to 
to play a part in how we receive the facts, for them to become living inside of us. This is why Jesus doesn't dump everything he has to say on his disciples. He acknowledges the fact that sorrows filled their hearts, and they can't handle anything else that he has to tell them at this point. Pete Cesaro in his book, The Emotionally Healthy Church, says that in neglecting our intense emotions, we are false to ourselves. Hear that? We are false to ourselves. And we lose a wonderful opportunity to know God. We forget that change comes through brutal honesty and vulnerability before God. Church, whenever we don't acknowledge what's going on in our hearts and we try to keep face so that our neighbors think that everything's good in the hood, you know? When we do this, we are, we are, we are, there's a part of God that we, we can identify with in this that we are missing out on completely. Some of the deepest work that the Lord will do in any of our lives is in the moments that we would never choose for ourselves. And that's a drum we've been beating because we really believe that the Lord is sovereign over everything's happening in our life. And that He cares for us far more about, He cares more, far more about us than we care about ourselves. And we care about ourselves a lot, right? That He wants to do a great work in us. But if we prop ourselves up on our own willpower, we are stiff-arming the very thing that God wants to do in our life. So what, what do we do, church? What do we do in light of this? What is our response? How do we change things? How do we change that nature of desiring to do that? Jesus had emotional intelligence. He was very aware. He had an EQ instead of an IQ, emotional intelligence. He was very aware of the emotions of his disciples, and he realized that how he communicated to them, that he had to consider the emotions of his disciples. And that he even experienced the full range of emotions that we experience as well. So what is emotional intelligence? What is it that we must develop? The Oxford Dictionary describes it like this. The capacity to be aware of, control, and express one's emotions, and to handle interpersonal relationships empathetically. Jesus isn't a bull in a china shop with his disciples. He doesn't just bust all their chops, but he cares for them. And this is what we see Jesus doing over and over again. Think about, you, you know, what is it like the sh- people say the shortest verse in the Bible is, is uh, in John 11 where Jesus has come up on the scene of Lazarus' death and he sees Mary and Martha and some, and some Jewish folks there and they're all weeping. Jesus doesn't come on the scene and say, hey guys, I'm about to raise him from the dead. Y'all just chill out. He doesn't say that, but what does he do? Scripture says his heart was troubled. Sorrow filled his heart. His heart was troubled and he began to weep. He began to weep. Why would Luke or John, whoever whoever wrote that account, why would they include that? Because Jesus cared about their emotional well-being. And it was a time to weep. As Solomon says, you know, in Ecclesiastes, there's a time for everything. There's a time to mourn. It was a time to mourn in that moment. Jesus is a great high priest to us. Listen to the words of Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Hear about your Savior. Hear about His heart this morning. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, listen to this, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. We don't have to run from what we feel, church. We don't have to run from Now, I'm not saying to always trust your feelings, but I'm saying to acknowledge them. That there's, a, there's a health to acknowledging what's going on inside of your heart and what happens inside of you in certain situations. There's something, there's a work that God wants to do. So we've got to develop two types of EQ, emotional intelligence. An EQ of ourselves and an EQ of other people to be able to do this well. This is what Jesus did very well. So an EQ of self says this, then whatever situation I'm troubled in heart about, and I'm, I'm weeping, I'm sad, I'm angry, whatever's going on inside of me, the first place that I look is not outside of myself, but I look inside of myself. We look inside of ourselves and we begin to ask the question, oh Lord, search me and know me. Show me who I am so that I will see the work that you are desiring to do within us. And then there's this other part where we, 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 we seek an EQ of other people, that we want to communicate the gospel effectively in all of life. And so we acknowledge, we empathize with other people, we enter into the pain of their story by the Spirit leading us into those moments. And we even ask some self-diagnostic questions to ourselves and then ask people that know you well the same questions. How am I perceived emotionally? If you brought something really heavy to me that you needed to share and talk about, what is your perception of me and how I would receive that? Am I approachable like that? Those are questions that we have to ask. And those are barriers to the gospel going forth in us and with other people. So we've got to acknowledge those things. So my question to you is, are you aware of your emotional intelligence? Because Jesus, he doesn't just say it once, he says it twice in this passage. I have many things to tell you, but you can't handle them right now. Jesus is concerned with how the disciples feel. Secondly, Jesus gives his disciples what they actually need instead of what they think they need. He gives them what they actually need instead of what they think they need. So we see that Jesus' disciples, what do they think they need in this situation? Jesus' disciples think that they need Jesus to stay with them. And so they're pretty upset about the fact that he's going to leave. But Jesus says, hey, look, you guys don't see the full picture. There's more to play here. And I would suggest that you and I do the same thing. Just like my college decision and many other decisions in my life, I have a plan for my life. And when my plan doesn't line up with God's plan, most of the time I'm trying to make my plan work out, right? I'm trying to, I'm trying to put God in this box and kind of control him so that my plan that God's plan will look like my plan. That's what I want to happen. But Jesus says, it can't happen this way. Occasionally, one of my children will say to me, no. Imagine that, right? One of my kids would say no to me. I will give them a command. I will give them, I will give them an imperative. This is what you are to do, child. And they will say no. And you know what it does to me? It makes my blood boil, Right? Some of you are shaking your head. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Why does it make my blood boil? Because my five, three, one, or three-month-old, in that sense, are saying, hey, Dad, you don't have a clue what you're talking about. Listen to me. I know what's right here. That's what they're saying to me. We are a culture that is, that is fixated on this idea of instant gratification. And this is a lot of times where we think that we know what is best for God. See, the disciples wanted to be instantly gratified in this moment. They wanted Jesus to stay with them. But what Jesus was after is a lifetime of gratitude for them. 
And that would only come through the work that you have to do on the cross. So this, this past week, both of our kids had earned a trip to the prize box. Now, in our house, we have a system of rewards, and the way that we reward our children is solely based on how they use their mouth. You know, if they speak in appropriate ways, occasionally we'll say, hey, go put a couple marbles in the bucket. They raise it up to a certain time, and then they can go to this prize box that we have. We're trying to, to instill in them the value of speaking in a godly way. So we, so we do this. This past week, I, had, I went through the bank at some point, the drive through and I got a couple suckers. They gave me way too many, so I just threw the suckers in the prize box. Now, in the prize box, there's things that are, you know, up to 2 or $3 of value. But my kids, whenever they saw those suckers in the prize box, those suckers that cost five cents a piece that I didn't pay a dime for, they immediately said, Dad, i got to have those suckers. I want those suckers. They, they couldn't see the fact that they could just exchange something else in there, get two or three bucks, go to the store and buy an entire pack of suckers to enjoy for the rest of the week and to keep them up all night long. They couldn't see that far. All they could see was the sucker in the prize box. And I would suggest that you and I a lot of times do the same thing. And the disciples were tempted to do the exact same thing in this situation. In John 16, 7, there's a key verse. Key verse in this passage. John 16, 7, Jesus says this. It's to your advantage that I go away. Hey, I've got your best interest in mind, guys. Listen to me. It's to your advantage that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the helper won't come. Well, what's the helper? The helper is the paraclete that we talked about a couple weeks ago. The Holy Spirit. The one that will come and make Jesus known to us. If I don't go away, He won't come. That's kind of a big deal. Jesus has to go away to accomplish this work. Jesus has to go and be betrayed. He has to go go and be beaten. He has to go to a cross. From the cross to a grave. From the grave, He has to be raised to life. And then at that, He signals the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit then comes into the life of the believers. We see in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls among the believers. And he begins to apply all the redemptive work that Jesus did on the cross to their lives. And that's where the real power, joy, and peace come in their lives. But they couldn't see that far. They thought they knew what was better for themselves. And Jesus came to save them from themselves. So upon completion of this work, it's when Jesus sends the the Holy Spirit. And Jesus' entire mission was to come and accomplish this work so that you and I could have the Holy Spirit with us today. That's the whole reason why I came. But the disciples, they couldn't see that far yet. The best commentary or explanation of how we see the Spirit work in the world is found in Acts chapter 2. You see, a lot of times I think about the Holy Spirit and I think about, okay, the Holy Spirit is for, it serves a role in the life of believers. You know, the Spirit comes into our lives. He gives us gifts to be able to serve the church, and we do that well. Well, in this passage of Scripture in John 16, we see that the Holy Spirit plays a role in the world around us as well, which is something I hadn't really thought about before. The role that the Holy Spirit plays, we see in John 16, but before we get there, I want to show you the work that the Spirit does, what it looks like. I'm going to give you a picture And then we're going to go back and we're going to talk about it. We're going to fill it in. We're going to look at the details. So Acts chapter 2, 36 and 37 says this. And and this is a situation where where Peter is just, all the apostles have just received the Holy Spirit. There's 120 believers up in this upper room. They receive the Spirit. They begin speaking in different tongues and different languages. It's a wild thing that's going on. They've been filled with power. And they're called to go and preach the good news to this unbelieving world. 
I want you to listen to what Peter says to these Jewish folks that are in Jerusalem. Here's what he says. Let all the house of Israel before, therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus, listen to this, who you crucified, he's pointing the finger at them, you guys crucified Him. Who you crucified. Now when they heard this, listen to this, they were cut to the heart. Peter has just told them that they've committed murder against the Son of God. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the disciples, listen to this, listen to their response when they're cut to the heart. Brothers, what shall we do? You see, if Peter would have preached this sermon a day before, he would have definitely been stoned. The Holy Spirit hadn't been sent yet. They would have said, man, you are out of your mind. But the Holy Spirit had been working in their lives of all these unbelievers that had crucified Jesus and they were cut to the heart. The truth, it went straight through their mind down to their heart. And they responded this way, brothers, what should we do? There's a, there's a response that has to happen. Tell us what we're to do. And this is when Peter says, go repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. His promises for you and for your children, for those who are far off. He gives them, he tells them that, that the way back to God is repentance. That we're all guilty, but God has sent the Spirit and he's, he's pricked your heart. He's done something in you. And there are some of you in this room today that the Holy Spirit has pricked your heart and you haven't responded like this yet. You haven't said, what should I do? I'm believing that this is true, but what should I do? Well, the Holy Spirit plays a role not only in the lives of believers, but also in the, in the world around us. The Holy Spirit is at work. God isn't just waiting on you to show up on the scene at your workplace and bring the good news with you. He's already working in the lives of people all around you. And He activates this truth by when we, we speak the word to people like Peter did, he activates it with the Spirit. And a lot of times we think it's our job to make people Christians, right? To change their lives. We're called to declare the word like Peter did and the, the power of the Holy Spirit is what activates that truth. So what's the role of the Spirit in the world around us? This is a new way to look at this and John 16 talks about it. So let's refresh our minds and look at verses 8 through 11 here. And when he comes, he's talking about the Holy Spirit that he's going to send. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So sin, righteousness, and judgment. This is the work that the Spirit came to do in the world around us. So let's kind of unpack this through here. Let's look at sin first. Most of the time, we see the conviction of sin. Conviction, it can mean exposure, kind of bringing things forth, showing your guilt, showing what you've done in the situation. We see it as a negative thing. We think, man, God is convicting me of sin. Jeez, can I get anything right? It's like we want to live our lives without needing Jesus. We, 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 we describe the spiritual maturity as a person who doesn't need Jesus. Isn't that interesting how we do that? Friends, I want us to flip that around. The conviction of sin is a beautiful thing. And why is it a beautiful thing? Because the Holy Spirit does it. The Holy Spirit is near to us when we're convicted of sin. This is a beautiful thing. So this week, 
You know, Megan was telling me about a particular thing that she had been convicted about. I'm praising God. I'm thanking God that he's near to my wife. He's near to us. The greatest problem that anyone has in the world is the sin that they have inside of them. And that is the exact thing that Jesus came to reveal. This is why he had to send the Spirit to reveal sin in the hearts of his people. Sin is the problem. It's nothing else around you. It's sin. There's a root cause of sin in every act of disobedience that you and I will do. Everything that, every way that we choose is better, uh, that we think that we know better than what God has for us. There's sin motivating it behind us. There's some type of selfish gain in mind. Do you know what the culture around us thinks is best for humanity? Do you know what that is? Al Mohler, who is the president of one of the schools that I attended, described what the problem is. It's, it's moralistic, therapeutic deism. This is the problem with Americans. And as we look at this picture of what this actually is, what, is, what our world thinks about themselves and about sin, I want you to look and to see if there's any place for conviction of sin in this. He describes it like this with kind of five principles. People see a God exists who created and ordered the world, and he watches over human life on earth. Okay, that sounds nice. That sounds pleasant, right? God exists. I believe in God. You know, I'll go all over the world, and it's really hard to find people that say that I do not believe in God. I mean, that's few and far between. But the problem is that's not enough to say that you believe in God. Jesus says even the demons believe and shudder. Second thing is this. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. You see, the issue is that every other world religion teaches the same thing, that we're supposed to be good. So here's the moralism creeping in, that we think if we're just good, that God will love us, that we'll have a right relationship with God. But the problem is our good and God's good are two different things. The third thing is this. The central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. Again, these are all things that people want to believe. That the goal of life is to be happy. The problem is, is there's no place for sin in this. The fourth thing is this. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Except when i got to pull the fire alarm because I don't know what to do. This is the deistic side of things. That God is a part of the equation, but He's far off. He's uninvolved. And whenever we need Him, we'll kind of pull the hatch and and pull the parachute and say, hey God, can you, can you come and rescue me? And lastly this, good people go to heaven when they die. The problem with this line of thinking, which I venture to say that most people that you know probably fall in here somewhere, whether we like it or not, is that it has no place for sin. There is no place for the conviction of sin here. There's no place for the shame and guilt that sin has brought into our lives. And therefore, there's really no healing. There's no resolution in our story. This this is not good news. Now, time and time again, people will try to convince you that this is good news. This is awesome. Look, my, my life is to be happy. I want to do good for other people. There's no place for the conviction of sin in this. And if the diagnosis is wrong, the prognosis cannot be right. And if the diagnosis is you're not a sinner, then the prognosis is just ignore it and everything will work out. The problem is, is it will not work out. We will stand condemned. And this is what Jesus is telling you. The work of the Spirit is to expose this type of a lie that seems close to the truth, but yet it doesn't deal with our deeper issue, which is sin. And the Spirit came to expose our sin. 
Jesus says, secondly, Holy Spirit came concerning righteousness. Because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. So Jesus is saying this, that he's at the, he's at the right hand of the Father. And because of this, he's going to convict the world of false, empty righteousness. Because all of our lives are a pursuit for righteousness, for right living, for right relationship. And if we ignore and belittle sin and unbelief, because Jesus says this is the biggest sin, right? Unbelief. If we ignore this, then we can never have a true righteousness. This is why Isaiah 64 says this, we have all become unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. I'm not going to the details of what polluted garment is, but trust me, it's disgusting. That's what he says your righteous deeds are like. That's hard to hear, right? That's what Peter told the Jews in Acts 2. He said, look, you guys murdered Jesus. And you thought you were doing the right thing. And the Spirit cut them to the heart. I want you to picture this. It's the year 1944, and we're prisoners of war, okay? We've been captured. We've been fighting a good fight. We've been captured. We're prisoners of war. The living conditions, I mean, they're atrocious. We're, we're, we're lucky to be alive. And every once in a while, we'll get a care package in the mail, something that will come in from the States, just to, just to give us enough hope to keep pushing on in this prisoner of war camp. And in this particular day, well, you and I, there was a really good thing that came into the mail, and it was this, Monopoly. The game of Monopoly, right? The game of Monopoly comes in, it gives a little bit of glimmer of hope, and so they begin playing the game. We begin playing the game of Monopoly, which... I really like the game of Monopoly. I hope you guys do too. But there's no greater way to start a war in my family than to play Monopoly. I don't know about your family. So we're playing the game of Monopoly. And all of a sudden, we begin resorting to other things. We, you know, in the game of Monopoly, there are these, there's this money, right? There are these bills. And so in the prisoner of war camp, we've got no money. And so we begin using the Monopoly currency as real currency. And so we begin playing poker buying goods that, that other people have, you know, maybe, maybe food that, that we really want. So we begin using this currency. And then all of a sudden, one day, the most glorious thing in the world happens. We're freed from this camp. And we get to go home to the United States. And sure, we are so messed up because we've been in this prisoner of war camp. Well, we come home. I've been pretty good at managing the Monopoly money in the camp. I go home and I, and I, and I believe that what I've been doing is so fruitful and so beneficial that I take this Monopoly money and I take it to the bank and I, and I try to deposit this money in the bank and I get up to the teller window and the teller looks at me and she says, she kind of smirks and she says, sir, this isn't real money. But I've been believing this whole time that it's been real because it's been earning me things. It's been, it's been giving me things in life. The world has developed a counterfeit form of currency, a counterfeit form of righteousness. And let me tell you this, this counterfeit form of righteousness looks very valuable to those that are around us. Just like the story about the prisoner of war camp, it's a true story that really happened. Just like this, the world has formed this counterfeit form of righteousness. And at the end of time, those that are of the world will take their monopoly money to the just God of the universe and they will say, let me into heaven. And you know what will happen? It will all burn. 
Because it counts for nothing. The world around us, Jesus is saying the world around us thinks that it knows what righteousness is. It thinks that it knows what's right in life. But the problem is there's no place for sin and there's no place for Jesus because there's no place for sin and therefore there's no righteousness. Because the only righteousness that you and I will ever have is the righteousness of Jesus Christ who gave his life for us. And then his righteousness is imputed to us. It's given to us when we believe in him. And as we're going to talk about judgment, we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's the righteousness that will be approved. That, that, that is the deposit that will be good. That is the deposit that the bank teller won't look at us and say, hey, sir, you've got fraudulent money here. That's what counts. Righteousness is the fulfillment of expectations in any given relationship. You see, the problem is, is that the righteous standard of God and our sense of rightness are two different things. We cannot live up to what God requires of us. This is why Jesus had to come. And every person that doesn't deal with this is hopeless. When we don't deal with this sense of what am I going to do about my righteousness? Am I just going to shove this aside? I'm just going to ignore sin? There's never any hope for us because we don't deal with the sin. The monopoly money is tossed out for us when we believe in Jesus, yet the bank account is full. All the things that the world values, all the things that, that the world thinks are valuable, they're all thrown aside, yet our account is full. Listen to Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world. And how will he judge the world? He'll judge it in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, Jesus. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is what true righteousness is. Lastly, Jesus talks about judgment. He says, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. He is not righteous, he is condemned, and there is nothing lasting about him. So my question to you is this. Every man, woman, child, angelic being will be judged. And judgment, judgment friends, is a good thing for Christians. You know why judgment is a good thing? Because we're not guilty. The Holy Spirit has come to reveal sin, which is to uproot false righteousness and to give us hope and judgment. We're not to fear God. God has a great work to do all around us. And my question to you is, as we close today, is what is it that you think you need? What is it that controls your life? How is it in your life right now that you think that you know what is best for your life? And is it real currency or is it fraudulent? Because Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. And we can trust him because God is good. Let's pray together, church. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have convicted the world of sin. That we have a sense right now of what is right and what is wrong. And that that's come through your Holy Spirit being among us. Father, I pray that you would convict hearts today. Lord, I'm not a hellfire and brimstone type preacher, but you were serious about judgment and righteousness and sin when you talked to the disciples. And this is the whole reason why you sent the Holy Spirit is to reveal these things because you want to redeem those that are lost. 
So Father, would you convict our hearts today in a way that we're refreshed because we know that you're near. And Father, would you help us to see that that you are emotionally engaged with your people. And Father, because of that, we we can do the same thing because you know us better than we know ourselves. And the whole reason you came was to save us from ourselves. So Jesus, we exalt you this morning. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.